Okay. Uh, yes. So, uh, hello and uh, welcome to this LSE Middle East Center webinar, where we will be discussing Turkey's domestic and international politics over the past two decades. Uh, I am Spiros Ophos. Uh, I'm a researcher based at the LSE Middle East Center, and I will uh, be chairing this event. Uh, before we proceed, uh, uh, let me make some housekeeping notes. Uh, our, skipper, uh, our speakers and I will attempt to explore some of the key issues this uh, panel seeks to address through engaging in dialogue, a dialogue we want you, the audience, to be part of, and we welcome your questions. If you would like to ask a question, please do not use the chat box. Type it instead in the, into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Uh, uh, and we will address the questions to the speakers in due course. Also, I would like to uh, uh, let you know that this event will be recorded and also uh, live streamed on Facebook, where you can find us by looking up uh, LSE Middle East Center. If you would like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Middle East. And uh, with these points made, I am beyond delighted to welcome our speakers, uh, Professor Evren Balta and Dr. Liesl Hintz. Uh, they hardly need any introduction, yet it falls upon me as, as the chair to attempt to provide an abridged rendering of uh, their extensive contribution to the field. So um, that's my rendering here. Uh, Evren Balta is Professor of International Relations and Chair of the International Relations Department at Ozean University and senior scholar at Istanbul Policy Center. She's a prolific researcher and uh, her articles have appeared in numerous uh, uh, leading journals. She's also co-author of the American Passport in Turkey, National Citizenship in the Age of Transnationalism that came out in 2020 uh, from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, also, she's uh, co-authored uh, The Age of Uneasiness, Global Security Complex, in Turkish, and she has edited or co-edited uh, numerous books, uh, notably Neighbors in Suspicion, Dynamics of Turkish-Russian Relations, Introduction to Global Politics, and uh, Military, State, and Politics in Turkey, all classics in the field of Turkish politics. In 2021, she was appointed as the academic coordinator of TUSIAD's Global Politics Forum. Uh, I encourage you to look at uh, the, the, the full CV at uh, our website, uh, but uh, I will stop here. Uh, Liesl Hintz is an assistant professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. Previously a postdoctoral fellow at Cornell University and a visiting assistant professor at Barnard College, Columbia University. She studies the arenas in which struggles over various forms of identity take place focusing primarily on Turkey, its relations with the Middle East, Europe, and the United States. Uh, her 20, uh, 2018 book, Identity Politics Inside Out, National Identity Contestation and Foreign Policy in Turkey, she has a copy next to her, I noticed, examines how Turkey's Justice and Development Party used foreign policy as a resource to weaken domestic opposition and open up spaces for uh, disseminating uh, its own narrative of Turkish national identity. She also works on a, a current book project, uh, which is under contract with Cambridge University Press, that investigates Turkish state society struggles over identity in the pop culture sphere. Her work also has appeared in numerous leading journals, and I'm sure that you have noted her contributions to foreign policy, uh, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and BBC World Service. 
So uh, I would like to welcome you both uh, to what I'm sure is going to be a stimulating event. Thank you for coming. And uh, I, uh, I think uh, without further ado, I would like to kickstart this discussion by asking a, the first question um, in our agenda in some ways. Uh, I think that it's uh, uh, uncontested that uh, Turkey over the past two, 20 years has uh, undergone considerable transformations at the levels of culture, of uh, uh, domestic politics, regional politics and international engagement. So I would like you to reflect on this and uh, identify the key in European changes in Turkish society and politics over this, uh, this period. And I would like to ask, uh, to ask Evren to start the discussion and then we will uh, get a little stake on that. Uh, thank you so much, Spurs, for inviting me. And I'm also delighted to be talking with Lizal Hens, whose book I have been assigning to my students in the last decade, in the last three, four years, uh, right after it came out. Um, so um, I was asked to talk about um, the inter uh, the the relationship between domestic uh, politics and foreign policy in the last two decades, which uh, basically overlaps with the period of the AKP uh, Justice and uh, Development Party. But I want to start with a personal note. I'm trained as a comparativist, and I wasn't specifically focusing on IR up until a decade ago, and that was the period where really domestic politics and foreign policy got intertwined so deeply that I have to look at uh, to the foreign policy dimension as well in order to understand the domestic politics. And in order to understand the foreign policy, I have to know domestic politics of Turkey as well. Uh, I have graduated from college in the mid 90s and we were trained to look at foreign policy as autonomous from domestic politics. We were taught by prominent scholars of Turkish foreign policy. I was at Mülkiye back then, um, I mean, a school which teaches specifically Turkish foreign policy. And we were taught by the professors that whatever happens in domestic policy, politics of Turkey, Turkish foreign policy orientation is largely determined by mostly structural and systemic factors happening at the international level. And, and indeed, we were said parties come and go, but Turkey's Western policy orientation remains largely in place. Diplomats, military officials were the major decision makers when it comes to foreign policy. And theoretically speaking, of course, that were the heydays of realism 1990s. Uh, but realism as a theory was a response to the empirical facts, to what's happening on the ground back then in Turkey and also in other places as well. And indeed, the power dynamics of the Cold War made domestic politics, not lar largely, but uh, still significantly irrelevant to foreign policy dynamics, and vice versa is true too. Uh, states like Turkey have too little room, too little autonomy in their foreign policy making, and that took foreign policy mostly out of the picture when it comes to domestic politics. This began to change not only in Turkey, but in many countries pretty much around the same time, and mostly um, as a result of structural systemic factors again. The obvious reason was, of course, the end of the Cold War, uh, the effects of which we did not fully begin to grasp up until the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we may talk about that as well. But I think two subsequent developments have shaped this inside-outside uh, dynamics. Uh, the first one was the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq. The hegemonic overstretch is one of the reasons of the American retrenchment from the Middle East. And the other reason was the 2008 crisis, uh, which was a major moment that made the American power more inward-looking. 
I think the major consequences of this, or the major consequence of these two developments was an increase in the foreign policy autonomy of middle powers like Turkey. This autonomy further increased with the Arab revolts and Syrian conflict, where the middle powers of the region have perceived new opportunities and threats and deeply felt the absence of the West. And starting from 2010s, two transnational conflict dynamics have dominated the Middle East and the region that Turkey plays in, which then shaped domestic identity construction processes as well as national interests. The first was a sectarian dimension and the conflict, and we all know it, we have covered it a lot, but the conflict between the Sunni and Shia and also the conflict within the Sunni, Sunni bloc was not only a regional power competition with domestic consequences, but also it was a domestic conflict with regional consequences. Each state has aligned with transnational forces that would boost their influence within the region and also tried consolidating their domestic power using sectarian references. This was in fact a period in which Turkey's pro-EU government and the still a puzzle um, uh, for the Turkish foreign policy analysts and scholars, um, a pro-EU pro government, uh, which really led to Turkey's EU accession process, suddenly and increasingly became pan-Islamic, offering itself as a model to the Muslim majority countries. And after this period, the Justice and Development Party, the AKP government, began to emphasize the identity of Turkey as a Muslim state more and more. Of course it was there, but it wasn't that transparent, it wasn't that open. Religion was increasingly used as a primary source of national unity after this period, because as I said, it was a dynamic within the regional power competition, but also in terms of the domestic identity competition. Furthermore, the populist strategy has shifted from emphasizing internal conflicts to external dynamics or to external forces. Obviously, this is also related to the fact that AKP itself is now the political elite itself, having consolidated its power domestically vis-a-vis -vis the secular establishment after the 2010 referendum. And this further polarized and already polarized society along, al alongside the secular conservative cleavage. So that was the first dimension, the secular conservative cleavage becoming more and more emphasized after the 2010. And the second dimension uh, that is also related, as I said, to the regional conflicts uh, and, and changes in the global and regional, um, uh, changes in the global and regional politics is the transnational uh, ethnic ties. Uh, and when I say transnational ethnic ties, I'm specifically referring to transnational Kurdish identity. Uh, the collapse of the Iraqi and Syrian states not only happened along the sectarian lines, but also it happened along the ethnic lines. This fueled Turkey's ontological security concerns, which almost always have its at its center, Kurdish secessionism or Kurdish identity as a major threat to the Turkish national identity, to the Turkish national unity. And similar to the sectarian conflict, controlling Kurds or Kurdish transnational identity uh, has, is become, has become, have become an important component of regional power competition with domestic consequences. But for Turkey specifically, it's a major domestic conflict with regional consequences. 
Uh, in fact, throughout the first decade of 2000s, AKP, Justice and Development Party, managed Kurdish conflict by using two strategies, uh, regionally, um, state-level cooperation, cooperation with Syria, cooperation with Iran, to strengthen state borders, to weaken transnational Kurdish connections and transnational Kurdish identity. And the second strategy was reintegrating Kurds through revoking their Muslim identity, focusing and underlying the underlining their Muslim identity. However, the strategy collapsed with the rise of ISIS and the collaboration of the US with the, with the PYD uh, in the fight against ISIS. And Kurdish movement in this period emerged as an ideological alternative with its emphasis both on secularism and democracy to the Muslim unity model of the AKP. So domestically, secular, democratic, and pro-Kurdish HDP significantly increased its percentage of the votes and became the main actor in 2015 electoral defeat of the AKP as well. So that was an, an other domestic threat coming from uh, Kurdish identity, which now has transnational connections. Um, these developments led to the re-securitization of Turkey's Kurdish question after 2015. And this was a new period for Turkish foreign policy. Uh, it was a period of nationalist expansionism and reprioritization of containment regarding to the Kurdish issue. Uh, this is also a period where the Justice and Development Party is now um, uh, in coalition uh, with uh, the Nationalist Party, MHP. Uh, this also became a period, this was also a period, this still is a period in which geopolitical, geopolitical anti-Westernism gained dominance in Turkey's um, national um, uh, in Turkey's domestic politics. I mean, anti-Westernism has always been there in Turkey's domestic politics. In fact, Turkey has always been one of the major anti-American uh, publics around the globe. Um, but after 2015, political activists, political establishment began to use anti-Westernism more and more uh, as a result of this geopolitical uh, links between, um, specifically as a result of this geopolitical link between uh, Kurds and, um, and, and uh, specifically the US. I mean, in the context of uh, Turkey, anti-Westernism usually refers to anti-Americanism, not anti-EU, not anti-Germany, but mostly anti-Americanism. A final moment to discuss, I think, is 2016 coup attempt. Uh, Turkey before the coup attempt was already in the process of de-democratization. I mean, uh, the cleavage between the Muslim and secular identity was already there. We already experienced the Gezi revolts, uh, which was basically um, about this cleavage as well. Uh, however, um, the coup attempt significantly accelerated the process and turned Turkey into an authoritarian state. Uh, a shift to hyper-presidentialism, the institutionalization, ruling by decree, emergency rule, further politiz politization of judiciary, all became defining elements of the period after 2016. 
Um, the Western governments um, also increased, and the EU and the Americans also increased their criticism towards the government. And um, this geopolitical anti-Westernism now become a political anti-Westernism as well. The government, the Turkish government, the AKP government, now in coalition with the MHP, increasingly understood this criticism as criticism of the government and felt threatened by it. As the Turkish government became more authoritarian, as I said, paths with the West diverged even more, and anti-Westernism strong, getting more stronger and becoming discursively the dominant theme in Turkish politics. Uh, this was a period in which Turkish political elites began to talk about autonomy from Western interests. This was a period where Turkish political um, establishment, um, the AKP uh, President Erdogan began to talk about Turkey's um, uh, place um, in, in Europe has to be better, has to be something else. So Turkey getting stronger, more autonomous, and this and that. Uh, so this, the concept of strategic autonomy, and um, now it's being used uh, by the EU as well, has been defined in the context of Turkey as being autonomous from the American interest, has been autonomous from the interests of NATO, uh, or being autonomous from the Western interests. And it really overlapped with this identity of new Turkey, where the domestic politics really, uh, or the domestic obedience really embraced uh, this Turkey becoming um, uh, greater, make Turkey great again, kind of a movement uh, that uh, this period really we experience. Uh, and this is also the period where Turkish began to shift, and that was already, I mean, all these things were already happening, and what I'm talking about after 2016, the pace of the, these events were uh, really, uh, I mean, they were, it, it, the, they were happening so fast and they were happening so significantly. And after 2016, Turkey also um, tried to create the strategic autonomy by making new alignments uh, and hence the role of Russia. So Turkey was now in alliance uh, or in um, in sort of an alignment uh, with, with Russia. And that uh, is also, uh, we can talk about the purchase of S-400s, which really created major rifts with, uh, within the NATO bloc and major problems between Turkey and its Western allies. Uh, this was also a period where Turkey's defense industry began to um, develop more and more. Uh, Turkey uh, producing drones, began to sell drones uh, to many countries becoming a major drone producer. Uh, this was also a period where in which Turkey expanding its military footprints abroad, military bases in Qatar, Somalia, Libya, Libya intervention. This was a period in which uh, Turkey had um, problems in the East Mat as well, uh, increased uh, problems uh, with Greece um, and, and all other countries in the East Mat uh, coalition. And a Turkish government began to focus more and more uh, to acquire necessary weapon systems, to expand its domestic military industry, and to defend itself alone. So this idea of being alone uh, among this uh, global uh, political competition um, or military competition has become very dominant discursively. And as I said, domestically, this idea of Turkey as a lone power um, or Turkey becoming greater again and Turkey becoming uh, autonomous uh, really um, embraced by specifically by uh, the pro-government uh, voters 
but also I should emphasize the fact that the foreign policy is something uh, that uh, the, even the opposition doesn't uh, really quite challenge the government, uh, which really created this uh, sort of a unity and consolidation. And it, in fact, has become only one element that really created this convergence uh, around the national identity um, although uh, there are lots of fissures within um, this as well. I mean, uh, if you look at um, uh, surveys, majority of the opposition voters uh, basically do not support Erdogan's foreign policy in Syria, specifically with regard to refugees, for example. Well, when it comes to Kurdish politics, uh, the support of uh, AKP and Erdogan is quite huge. Uh, so that nationalist movement is very important and it really created this uh, getting together moment for Turkey in a sense, but that the, the, the divergences or the cleavages, major cleavages and the extreme polarization of the society around those cleavages remained sort of um, stable. I think uh, this began to change uh, in the last year, last two years uh, or so, uh, because of the economic crisis that Turkey has been uh, going through, uh, because of the domestic legitimacy crisis that the Turkish government has been experiencing in the last um, couple of uh, years. Uh, Turkey tried to create a more sort of a, um, or tried to um, uh, rejoin uh, to the Western alliance, uh, creating more uh, space for dialogue um, and this and that. Uh, but that is also um, not without bumps or going back and forth. Uh, Turkey tried to keep this balancing position, tried to uh, talk, uh, tried to keep talking to Russia to keep that strategic autonomy, but also um, uh, 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 increasingly had a pro-NATO uh, stance, for example, in the Black Sea. Um, maybe we can talk later. I'm going to be stopping here. I'll stop here. Um, I think the, with the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine and also uh, with the NATO expansion and, uh, and enlargement, specifically the membership of Sweden and Finland, uh, we may talk about these developments as well. But these are also uh, both domestic and uh, regional competition or global competition dynamics. Or and, and as I said, we can talk about these things uh, later on, maybe in the second round. Thank Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, Lisa, I think that you have a lot to say as well here, so I will, uh, yes, uh, let you respond. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Spiros, for, uh, for organizing this. Thanks for the team that helped to put this together. Thanks to everyone for joining us. Um, and thanks, Eren, for your, your very kind comments. And I, I was going to offer my own very kind comments, but I think everyone can tell from your comments why you're a giant in the field. Um, and from the, the many publications that Spiros listed, um, it's an honor to, to speak alongside you. Um, you know, I think we were talking as we were just kind of getting ready for the panel that it's sort of always um, a, a topical time to be talking about the intersection of domestic politics and foreign policy in Turkey, and that Turkey is such a good case for understanding how domestic politics shapes foreign policy, foreign policy shapes domestic politics. Um, and I think exactly with the, the last um, case that Erdogan mentioned, with Turkey's objection to uh, Turkey's blockage, in fact, of Sweden and Finland's um, accession uh, in NATO, 
you can't understand that unless you understand what's going on with domestic politics in Turkey right now. Um, you can't understand why Turkey would make this foreign policy move, um, you know, one that is really disrupting what a lot of people saw as this historical moment in NATO expansion. Um, you know, countries, Sweden in particular, shifting, uh, you know, centuries of, of foreign policy um, in order to join NATO, but without understanding the potential concessions that Turkey has to gain, um, particularly for its domestic defense industry, the way in which it may be able to use the foreign policy arena, as I'll talk about, as an arena of identity contestation, um, how it may be able to use its position as a member of NATO and the need for all NATO members to agree, for need for consensus when we have uh, questions of accession, that it's being able to use this political opportunity to negotiate uh, for concessions that would potentially benefit the AKP, the Justice and Development Party back home, um, concessions for the domestic defense industry, being able to sort of discursively and and even from an image perspective position Turkey as a country that needs to be reckoned with as a country that is vital to the transatlantic security structure that is vital to global and and regional developments as we've also seen Turkey position itself in the uh in Russia's uh, war on Ukraine so there's there's the domestic defense industry there is the sort of global positioning of Turkey as this powerful regional actor that must be reckoned with, whose security interests must be taken seriously. And then there's the nationalist boost that he's also able to get by being very tough on Kurdish issues, by saying, you know, Sweden and Finland, you need to stop your support for the PYD. You need to uh, extradite what he considers to be Kurdish terrorists, um, one who's actually of Iranian descent. Um, you know, all of these different sorts of claims that he's able to make can play well with publics back home. And, you know, one of the issues that Evren brought up was the question of, you know, Turkey's military intervention in Syria and how that's popular with multiple nationalist constituencies, not just the AKP's own constituency, but the sense that this nationalism and in fact, in a lot of senses, anti-Kurdism can be used to rally a number of different constituencies that the AKP really needs right now. And so this is a really, I think, important time to be talking about the intersection of domestic politics and foreign policy because of what's going on in NATO and particularly because of what's going on in Turkish domestic politics, as Evren mentioned. We have the elections coming up next year. The AKP has been in power since 2002. The AKP is in this electoral alliance, kind of an informal coalition with the Nationalist Action Party, but its poll numbers are slipping. You have an economic crisis, as she mentioned. Um, you have governmental mismanagement of monetary policy, of all kinds of different policies that are leading to this economic crisis. There are structural reasons why we're seeing the economic crisis unfold as we are, but you know, central bank turnover and maintaining interest rates at a very low rate. Um, there's lots of different ways in which the government um, has uh, has contributed to the economic crisis. Um, you know, 
foreign direct investment is down. Um, uh, investors are concerned about the stability of the Turkish political system and so forth. They're concerned about the lira. So there's a lot of ways in which the AKP can, from voters' perspective, be blamed for the current economic crisis. So again, when you're thinking about domestic politics and foreign policy, and you have a government that is facing elections, is facing economic crisis, is facing slipping numbers, is facing a youth population with a number, millions of voters that are gonna be voting for the first time that don't seem to have you know, been very receptive to the AKP's messaging. All of that is a really great, makes for a really useful case, I think, for studying why domestic politics can spill over into the foreign policy arena and how foreign policy, uh, foreign policy initiatives and interaction in the foreign policy arena can help shape, potentially boost, and in some cases harm, government's uh, actions back home. So the, the take that my, my book, which Evidence so kindly referenced, um, is putting forward is that in a lot of, and I love it because, um, so Evren said that she was trained as a comparativist and then kind of went in the IR direction. I was trained in IR and then went in the comparativist direction. So this is a great, Spiro's great job bringing us together. Um, but, you know, I think often, particularly in, in the, the IR literature, when there is an attempt to try, or let's say more traditional literatures, when there's an attempt to try to bring them better, bring, bring them together, there's a sense that, Okay, so foreign policy can be a product of domestic politics, right? So, you know, you're you're a Muslim country, and so you are engaging in a pan-Islamic uh, foreign policy, or you have, um, you know, a a pan-Turkic uh, government, and so you're engaging in pan-Turkic foreign policies, right? So the domestic is kind of the source of the foreign policy, and then there's the second image reversed, which is like the the foreign policy is contributing to the domestic politics. Um, in the sense that you join the EU and you undertake some institutional reforms and those can shape norms and values and those trickle down and eventually society and identities can change and become internalized and so forth. So we kind of see these, you know, um, these, these one directional explanations of the intersection. And what my book tries to do is rather than look at foreign policy as a cause or consequence of specifically identity politics, domestic politics, but specifically identity contestation, is that it's an arena in which those debates take place. It's arena in which domestic actors can kind of fight out their, uh, their struggles over what is the appropriate identity for a particular population, free of some of the domestic institutional constraints that they would face back home. So just to illustrate what that looks like in the case of Turkey, um, Evren rightly mentioned that, you know, the, the AKP's full force, we are pro-EU, we, this is, this is the policy that we're going to, to uh, stand by when they come to power in 2002, is, is quite surprising given the, the history of the AKP. So it's a party that's formed in 2001, but it's not a party, party that comes out of nowhere. It's a party that's formed by members of the Nationalist Outlook Movement. Um, and this is a, a movement with one of the most anti-Western trajectories of political Islam in Turkey. And so it's surprising, it's puzzling that this government comes in in 2002 and kind of not only continues the EU trajectory that Turkey had been on under previous coalition governments, but really full force, you know, sending diplomats, lots of, you know, positive rhetoric. Um, you know, Ali Ren and, and Abdul are holding hands and there's all this imagery around this. And, and there's this sense that that is the direction that Turkey is going in. And the argument that I make 
is that in fact, the AKP was using its EU foreign policy as a way to try to reduce the objections of domestic obstacles back home. So thinking about different understandings of Turkish national identity, the AKP has what I call an Ottoman Islamist understanding of, of Turkish national identity. And I, you've mentioned culture, Spiros, and I know we're going to get into some of those uh, questions of culture and identity a little bit more. And I'm happy to unpack why I come up with these terms. Um, but an Ottoman Islamist understanding has a very different sort of take on what Turkishness looks like, both in terms of, of domestic politics and in terms of foreign policy. However, that understanding of identity, both domestically and in foreign policy, had been punished by and had been sanctioned by previous what I call Republican nationalist institutions that had a Western, um, you know, sort of uh, a, a NATO centered or a Western understanding of Turkish national identity. This is where Turkey's foreign policy lies, a secular understanding of politics and, and identity back home. And so you had these Republican nationalist institutions like the military, like the judiciary, like the university education system that were meant to guard this particular understanding of identity against any potential threats. And there were a number of threats from leftism to Kurdism, Kurdish nationalism um, to political Islam. And the AKP, having seen multiple parties in its tradition of political Islam closed down, Having seen the previous, uh, in fact, the only time in which a party in that tradition was able to lead a coalition government, the welfare party in the 90s, kicked out of power and then closed down by the constitutional court. They use foreign policy, they use the EU accession process as a way to reduce the role of the military, reconfigure the judiciary, reconfigure the way in which university rectors are chosen and so forth. So there's a sense that the foreign policy arena can provide a set of tools or can provide conditions by which domestic actors can weaken obstacles back home. And so if you actually look at, and this is the answer to that puzzle, if you look at the reforms that the AKP was undertaking from say 2002 to 2000, end of 2005 is sort of when I see the reform process start to slow. And then, of course, the accession talks are halted in December of 2006. Those reforms are targeted at the National Security Council. They're targeted at civil-military relations, which the EU thinks is great because let's civilianize civil-military relations. That's in line with democratization criteria. The economic reforms were in line with EU criteria. The judicial reforms were in line with EU criteria, but they were all able to reconfigure the domestic playing field, reduce the role of Republican nationalist obstacles and open up the space for the AKP's understanding of Ottoman uh, Islamist identity. So that's one of the ways in which I think we can think about how foreign policy can both sort of reflect domestic politics, but also how it can be used to shape the domestic playing field back home. And then if you look at the policies that the AKP is undertaking both domestically and in the foreign policy arena, once they've sort of reconfigured that playing field, then you start to see a much more sort of open, uh, assertive, and even aggressive foreign policy. Then you start to see some of the more, um, you know, pro, uh, pro-Islamic countries, um, you know, aligning with Hamas, aligning with the Muslim Brotherhood, and so forth. And so you have this sense that the AKP was able to open up the space for these particular 
uh, alignments. What happens, of course, and Evren did a, an outstanding job of highlighting a number of the sort of different inflection points or, or junctures that I think are really important, um, is you have sort of a set of constraints that the AKP faces in trying to uh, project this particular understanding of identity. And the Arab uprisings are one of them. And, and, and I should say the fallout of the Arab uprisings are one of them. So the AKP really you know, hitched its wagon to Mohammed Morsi's government and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And so that then gets their relationship with Egypt gets complicated uh, after Sisi's takeover. Um, Erdogan and Assad had become very close friends. Uh, they vacationed together. Um, that was seen as a relationship that could be cultivated in this larger uh, sort of understanding of Turkey regaining its historical legacy of, uh, you know, home of the caliphate and, and of influence in these, these neighborhood territories, particularly former Ottoman territories. Um, and then when, when Assad doesn't listen to Erdogan's many entreatments to, you know, stop cracking down on, on the, the uprisings as you are, that immediately turns to a relationship of enmity. Um, and in fact, you have the, the Turkish government aiding the opposition within Syria. And of course, as Evren mentioned, this ends up contributing to the refugee flows that we see in Turkey. And this, as a consequence of those sort of open door welcoming of refugees foreign policies, can now sort of the, the effects of that can now be seen in the domestic politics of Turkey and the fact that Syrians and refugees in general, although I should note that if you're not coming from Europe, you're not technically a refugee in Turkey. They have a geographical reservation to the refugee convention. So these are temporary guests afforded a particular form of protection. Um, but, you know, from from Syrians to Afghans to Iranians to Iraqis, the, the question of, of refugees is really playing out very, very strongly in uh, the debates right now discursively over what Turkey's foreign policy should have been and how the opposition is blaming the AKP for the fact that Turkey now hosts more Syrians um, than any other country in the world. So really the politicization of this humanitarian crisis is something that's playing a strong role in domestic politics right now. Um, so again, there's lots of different ways in which we can see that intersection. Evren raised a number of, I think, really important foreign policy issues. Um, I do think the, the, she mentioned the 2016 coup attempt, which I think is very important. Important in terms of also hardening the anti-Americanism um, that she mentioned. The, the anti-Westernism that does take this anti-American uh, tinge that, absolutely has been present on the left, has been you know, frustrated with, with perceived American imperialism in the Middle East, um, but that the night of the coup attempt, I think, and the way that those events played out and the fact that the US was somewhat hesitant to condemn the coup attempt and that Vladimir Putin was the first person to call uh, President Erdogan, um, you know, there was a, a fundamental shift in terms of the extent to which Turkish-U.S. relations would be shaped by domestic politics. And there was a mistrust uh, or distrust that really was fomented around those events. And that is compounded by the fact that the U.S. has not extradited Fethullah Gülen and that the U.S. has supported the YPG, the Syrian Kurdish YPG forces in the fight against ISIS. So, so those senses of, or those moments in which these domestic politics uh, moments can sort of harden relationships in the foreign policy arena, 
um, I think are something really important to understand as well. And I think that there's a lot of talk now about Turkey kind of taking a Russian turn. Um, and is, is this having something to do with some kind of like, you know, counter hegemonic pushback against the US? Is this shaped by some new conceptualization of a universal world order? I think actually everyone has it much more accurately. I think it's much more about Turkey now carving out this independent foreign policy that will not be constrained, refuses to be constrained by you know, U.S. dictates about which weapon system it should purchase um, or, you know, NATO trying to to use its leverage against Turkey. So I think there's this identity based sense of of nationalism, of of need for the international community to recognize Turkey's sovereignty. So I think that's playing in quite a bit um, to the way in which we're seeing Turkey interact with NATO, for example. So lots and lots of different elements that we could look at and cases that we could look at. Um, but that's kind of adding a little bit of an identity politics layer to the, the great foundation that everyone provided. Um, thank you very much. I think that, um, uh, in many ways, uh, you have both uh, made an amazing case uh, for challenging the uh, idea of the autonomy of foreign policy, of international, uh, but also of uh, blurring the boundaries between domestic and foreign uh, towards both directions in some ways. And I think I would like to uh, go a little bit off script because we had a script uh, of questions and uh, ask you uh, here, um, uh, Given the fact that uh, um, the Justice and Development Party has operated in a quite volatile environment, both internally and externally. So, for example, uh, it had it was challenged during the, the, the presidential election that led to Abdullah Gül becoming uh, president. It was challenged uh, by the military and the, and the Constitutional Court. Uh, uh, it was almost closed at some point, and at the same time, in the foreign uh, uh, in the foreign domain, uh, as you both, in some ways, uh, uh, said, uh, given the fact that uh, uh, the Justice and Development Party uh, uh, first uh, allied itself with uh, Assad, uh, it uh, tried to play the uh, um, I would say the to assume the role of a model for uh, a Middle East, but then as the Arab Spring was quashed uh, by different regimes, uh, there had to be a U-turn and uh, traditional friends like Egypt were ditched uh, uh, in a quite, quite spiteful, I would say, um, a, a demonstration of feelings on the part of Erdogan. Uh, anyway, to cut the long story short, I wanted to, to, to say, uh, Given that the AKP had specific uh, um, uh, ideas of how it wanted to use foreign policy uh, domestically and domestic policy in some ways uh, uh, to, to project uh, its domestic kind of role, uh, how, do, uh, how does it cope with this volatility? It has to improvise, it has to change course on several occasions. And uh, I, I would be very interested to, to, to see this kind of improvisation element in uh, what do you think about its ability to improvise and how can it uh, reconcile uh, earlier narratives with later narratives? How can it do that effectively? Uh, do it make sense? I don't know. Just... Sure, yeah, shall I start? 
I think the core concept, the major concept to understand this shape-shifting uh, foreign policy and shape-shifting in domestic politics is populism. I mean, this is happening both in domestic politics and in foreign policy. And I think foreign policy is really becoming, as Lizelle really nicely presented, as an area in which populists and the populist government, the AKP, is using as a site for a continuation of domestic politics by other means, as we all described. But what I'm trying to say here is that the core concept of foreign policy, populism, or the core concept or the core essence of populism is really uh, saying this, I am basically defending the people. And it can attach itself with numerous ideologies. It can become liberal, it can become nationalist, it can become Islamist, uh, it can align with Russia and the United States as long as it keeps this core element that I am defending the national union of this people, national integrity, I'm trying to elevate the status of people both domestically against the domestic elites, and I am trying to elevate the status of the Turkish people against the global elites or global power centers. So the core concept of AKP's governing ideology has been in the last two decades has been this. I mean, it never changed. It's the stable element that really connects the AKP to its voters, to its voting base, uh, to the people who support Erdogan. I mean, they really do believe that uh, AKP government and Erdogan government is elevating their status. They identify with the government, both domestically and externally. So I think that's something that really gives a lot of advantage to the populist governments in such a volatile uh, setting, as you said. I mean, a government which has a fixed identity, right? Uh, let's just assume, saying that I'm doing this, I have this, uh, this identity, this Kemalist identity, I'm not militarily assertive, and this and that, whatever, uh, could have, uh, have faced more difficulties than the AKP government in such a volatile um, environment, as you mentioned. Um, so I think that's the core element, this populist political strategy, which really overlapped the domestic politics and the foreign policy discursively, and which really resonated um, not only among the AKP's voter base, but also among the people or among the Turkish people, um, because I mean, in the domestic politics is really divisive in that sense. When you use populism in domestic politics, it's very divisive because it really uh, pits the people against the domestic elites, which are usually defined as the secular establishment. Uh, and as Lizelle really nicely um, explained as the Kemalist elites, judiciary, military, and this and that. But then when that evaporated, when the AKP itself became the political elites and became in the establishment, it really shifted its focus to foreign policy and uh, really begin to use this idea of elites as outside, as external elites. And that is less divisive. And that really connects uh, the domestic politics uh, in a way uh, that you basically um, get your legitimacy from uh, your foreign policy repertoire. And that's another way of really, you know, foreign policy is a core component of populist political governments, not just in Turkey, it's in Brazil like that, Trump's government was like that, I mean, elevating the status of the US, making US, making America great again, all the populist governments really when they are trying, when they're being less divisive, they're using this, uh, this foreign policy aspect, I would say. 
I think that's a really nice way of of thinking about, again, the, the intersection between the domestic and the foreign policy, because exactly as you're saying, the the, the core elements of populism is about this like pure elite, this pure people and this corrupt elite. And we need to elevate the role of the people. And, you know, the elites have been bastardizing politics and they've probably had some foreign intervention that's helped them. And, and we need to kind of unearth the genuine, the, the, the real, the pure people. And that creates this incredible us versus them dynamic that the AKP has leveraged so effectively. I was going to say so well, but I'll say so effectively. We see this in the Gezi Park protests. We see this in anyone who is protesting against the government is a part of the them. And that could be for a variety of reasons, but there has become this erosion of, and this gets to the point about de-democratization that Evran made earlier, this erosion of the idea of a loyal opposition. There's no such thing as a loyal opposition. If you're in the opposition, you're inherently a terrorist. You know, you're you're a traitor. You are you are not part of the true people. And so there's an identity component to that as well in this us versus them dynamic um, that the AKP has be, been able to leverage effectively using this divisive rhetoric in order to not only marginalize opposition, but criminalize it. So, you know, using the insulting the president as a way to jail people, um, using that as a form of intimidation of the opposition. And there's a foreign policy component to this as well in terms of, I always sort of call it this like, hyper-masculine nationalist populist strongman club. And Erdogan is a member of that club and Trump is a member of that club. And, and as, as everyone was saying, um, you know, Bolsonaro, Putin, you know, if you look at the way that the S-400 uh, crisis, I guess, from the US perspective has played out, one of the reasons that from the US perspective, Turkey actually went ahead with the S-400 purchase and, and didn't kind of get the US's message that if you go ahead with this, we will remove you from the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter Program. We will enact other sanctions on you. Part of that came from the fact that President Trump was telling Erdogan on the sidelines, don't worry about it. You know, there was a lot of mixed messaging that was going on. And part of that has to do with this sort of recognition, at least on Trump's part. I think he, he found himself quite... Uh, happy to be a member of that club, to be able to interact with these other strong men who were taking firm stances back home. And so in a sense, he's almost shielding Erdogan from these potential sanctions that, that from a lot of uh, observers' perspectives, should have been applied. The Katza sanctions should have been applied much earlier to Turkey. Um, so there can be this, you know, almost foreign policy component as well to this, this recognition that we are part of this populist strongman club. In terms of the question about how, how the AKP has kind of been able to manage um, its many different uh, challenges to its, its power that it's seen, you know, the, there's a definitely a pragmatic element to this that I think comes with the populism that everyone is talking about is that there, there are core components to the AKP's identity, but they're able to emphasize different aspects of that identity at different times with different allies. And so while there was this process of trying to marginalize the Republican nationalists, the AKP was working together with the Gulen movement in Turkey. And they had the mutual goal of trying to reduce the role of the secularist establishment and 
create space for Islam in the public sphere. When that has a falling out, there's a shift to the Kurdish movement. And there's the Kurdish peace process from 2012 to 2015, which had foreign policy implications as well. Um, and then when the Kurds from the AKPs, and then as everyone was saying earlier, they're emphasizing this you know, Muslim identity that unites both of us. You know, We've been under the flag of Sunni Islam for, uh, for centuries as uh, Abdullah Öcalan's kind of unexpected Nauru speech in 2013 outlines. And then when that breaks down, because the AKP sees that the Kurds are a political threat because they are able to uh, remove the AKP's parliamentary majority for the first time in the June 2015 elections, and then you have the reignition of the war with the PKK, then they shift to the Nationalist Action Party. And then they're emphasizing sort of the more nationalist Turkish version of the Islam that, that they've been promoting. So there's a pragmatic shifting that can take place depending on what alliance they they need to build, there's still an identity component at the, the heart of it, but they're able to emphasize different aspects of that. Um, and you know, in terms of the foreign policy arena, there has certainly been, uh, up until relatively recently, almost the, the isolation of Turkish foreign policy because of its support of Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood and of Qatar. And so you see this in the GCC crisis where, you know, Turkey is kind of like it's got Qatar and it's got the Libyan GNA sort of as its only two real strong allies in the region. Um, and now we see Turkey walking that back, right, post-Abraham Accords economic crisis, need for energy, need for uh, economic financial stimulus uh, into the economy. Now we're seeing these attempts to kind of create a rapprochement with Israel, create a rapprochement with UAE, Saudi, um, the you know removal of the Khashoggi case um, from the Turkish court system, lots of different ways in which we're seeing, I think, again, sort of a more pragmatic attempt to, uh, to try to solve some of the crises that the Turkish government created for itself by really doubling down on identity. Um, and I think now, and this is a very cynical take, but I think that the rut that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has provided Turkey a political opportunity to reassert its importance in the international arena, you know, as um, part of the Montreux Convention and, you know, controlling the Bosphorus Straits, to playing the mediator role between Ukraine and Russia precisely because of its relationships with the two. So there's always this pragmatic reconfiguring, repositioning, tactical adjustment that the AKP has, has been able to do. And the question is sort of how long can it continue that? And, and what domestic challenges is it gonna face um, in terms of some of the backlash against both its domestic politics moves and its foreign policy ones? Thank you. Um... I sort of uh, can see Foucault smiling at this kind of discussion in the sense that uh, uh, he has uh, talked about the effectiveness of discourse, and in this case, the AKP discourse, as a discourse that can really mask contradictions, gaps, and, uh, and uh, uh, discontinuities within it. And essentially, that's what we are witnessing in, in some ways. Uh, yes, please. Maybe it's just I really want to add something to that point. I mean, it was about discourse, but it was also about decision making processes. Um, I mean, adapting so fastly to this volatile uh, environment is related to the fact that the, the institutionalization that Turkey has gone through and 
institutional power. Uh, so Turkish political elites, both the presidency and the AKP itself, always emphasize this fact that uh, because of the centralization and personalization of power, we are very effective uh, in terms of responding to the threats, making new alignments, and this and that. And basically comparing, for example, their, uh, when I do reviews with the Turkish foreign policymakers, Turkish foreign policy bureaucrats, they have always been emphasizing this fact that uh, the, when we talk to the, our EU allies or the Western allies, they're always limited by the congresses, parliaments, um, and, and it's very difficult to do anything with them. But with Russia, we talked to Putin and we solved the problem. And now we are in, on a different path immediately. The day after, uh, we can change the course. So this deinstitutionalization dynamic really played a role uh, in, in this shape-shifting, I mean, the ability of shape-shifting, uh, because you, you can actually do that. But no, there are no constraints. Uh, so I think that's an important component um, of that as well. Thank you. I would just, if I could just super quickly build on that, because I think this is such an important point, the, you know, the consolidation of the power in the, the executive and 2000 and then Erdogan's election to the presidency in 2018 gives him the ability to do so. But I think also he could be playing two sides of this, but I think it also colors how he thinks other governments can respond. And so when he's demanding that Sweden extradite particular individuals, I think he's thinking that the Swedish government can just say yes, but no, you know, rule of law dictates that that can't happen. And that has been at least the U.S. Department of Justice's argument about Fatima Gulen as well. We can't just say, hand these people over. Um, and so there's definitely a sense in which that consolidation of and personalization of, of domestic politics and foreign policy, I think, shapes Erdogan's vision of what governments can do and should be able to do. Um, and then I would also say on the, the discourse point, there's an and on the shape shifting point. When it comes to the domestic politics consequences of foreign policy, I think it's really important to understand the political economy of the media in Turkey, whereby Erdogan can shape the discourse because he controls about the AKP has about 90 to 95% of the media in its pocket because of the holding companies that have these banking interests and construction interests and, and so forth, so that it's not in their interest to show any kind of media that's not favorable to the AKP. So I think that plays a really big role as well. Thank you. I, I would like to bring together two things that each one of you raised, uh, because I, I find it fascinating that you use sometimes different language to describe similar uh, phenomena. So, for example, everyone talked about the institutionalization of uh, uh, policy and, and uh, uh, power to some extent. And Lisa, you, you talked earlier about um, uh, how the bad boy mentality in some ways uh, is uh, become central to some extent in uh, uh, Turkish politics as well as in uh, politics in other um, uh, countries. And I think uh, also everyone mentioned that. I wanted to, um, uh, in some ways, try to stretch this a bit. And, and uh, uh, since also you mentioned the, uh, uh, the fact that Erdogan uh, has a particular model of personalized personalistic governance that is much more flexible to some extent than uh, say uh, governance based on uh, rules and uh, constitutions and courts and so on. So I, I would like, first of all, to um, uh, see if this bad boy mentality in some ways and the deinstitutionalization are parts of the same kind of constellation of uh, 
uh, understanding politics. Uh, if, if there is something that, uh, uh, for example, Erdogan has mentioned so many times when he has been uh, um, furious with the courts uh, uh, about how courts uh, flout the national will, Milirade, in some ways. And that's a quite interesting thing because he is arguing that I can in some ways as a politician that expresses the people can, can have the flexibility to bypass niceties, constitutional and legal niceties. That's the first thing. The second is he promotes this as a model that then he can use to criticize Sweden or the United States as a, a unwilling in some ways and unable to effectively run their affairs in, in some ways. So I would, like to, I would like us to try to unpack this and see if there are any connections to, to this kind of science fiction kind of scenario I tried to concoct here. But um, also I would like us to see how culture in a deinstitutionalized, uh, um, I would say uh, political domain uh, makes inroads in some ways and becomes relevant. And I'm talking about pop culture, I'm talking the about the media and so many other things that, yeah. Okay, I'm done. Please, uh, I don't know who would like to start addressing this. I don't mind, but I, am I... Go ahead, go ahead. No, we have you go ahead for this okay. time as well, okay. why not? Okay. Um, yeah, so I think, the, the question of institutionalization and deinstitutionalization is a really important one. Um, and I think we, we may mean different things when we're, when we're using the terms. So when I think of the Turkish, when I think of Erdogan's position right now, um, and I, I want to be careful because I think often we talk about, you know, Turkish foreign policy, we talk about AKP foreign policy, we talk about Erdogan foreign policy. Um, you know, it's there's an extent to which he plays such an important role both in, in foreign policy and in domestic politics, but that he relies on particular constituencies. Um, but when we look at his position right now from a political perspective, I think from an institutional perspective, he's in the most powerful position he's ever been with a consolidated presidency. But from a political perspective, I think he's probably the weakest he's ever been. Um, you know, from polling numbers, from um, you know, the, the ability, this may be hampered and it may be hampered because of the sort of wedge politics that Erdogan may be playing, but the ability of the opposition to come together. Um, I think there's a lot of ways in which the, the elections next year are a precarious moment for him. Um, but when, so again, institutionally, he's, he's very strong, but there has been a deinstitutionalization or almost a capture by the AKP of elements of the judiciary, certainly of elements of the media, um, that has sort of allowed him to be able to challenge, again, as you were saying earlier, Spiros, to challenge particular court decisions, um, to use, uh, to try to use his authority, his intimidation, his, you know, switching out of figures, switching out of central bank uh, heads and so forth, as a way to try to ensure that his policies are, are being carried out. So I, I think this really is a personalization in terms of control, but also in terms of vision, and then also in terms of personal enmities as well. Um, and I think, Spiros, you used that, that word earlier. Um, and I think that that when we're talking about the personalization of foreign policy, the role that grudges play, the role that sometimes, you know, the, the extent to which 
Erdogan's 180 on Syria could not, to the point that it's supporting the opposition in Syria, I don't think could be explained if we didn't understand how frustrated and angry he was with Assad, with Bashar al-Assad. I think the same sort of goes with Fatah Gulen, like you have these tiffs, you have these political struggles and so forth, but I think there's a sense that personal relationships and emotions shape foreign policy decision-making as well. So when I think personalization, I almost think not only about individual control, but about personal views and personal relationships as well. That the capture of the sort of foreign policy decision-making establishment that Erdogan has been able to enact uh, sort of allows him to do. On the culture question, um, I'll, I'll, I'll just be super brief and maybe we could, could get into that more. Um, but this is the, the subject of my current book project and I find it absolutely fascinating. I, I try to think of the intersection of politics and culture or pop culture specifically at three different levels of analysis. Um, and one is directly related to domestic politics. Well, two, two are, but one is the opposition's ability to use pop culture as sort of a, a a social network as a way of forming solidarity, of, of sustaining hope, of symbolically eroding the power of the leader, taking him down a peg when you're making fun of him in a video or a song or you know, a TikTok uh, video or something like that, an Instagram story. Um, the sense to which the opposition is able to use pop culture as sort of this vernacular arena of contestation to continue to sustain itself, even sometimes kind of behind the scenes, when you know the streets are closed off to protest and you know if you have a small protest uh, on a campus you're going to have the police come in right away so i think the opposition's use of pop culture is is really important to focus on um, then there's what the regime can do in terms of identity building and policing and promoting who shows up on media and therefore who is the ideal turk and you know canceling particular television shows or promoting others because they are trying to craft and curate a particular understanding of identity um, but in the foreign policy sphere, this is really fascinating to me. Um, and I have a working paper now on Turkey's role in the GCC crisis um, and how that spills over into television and, and foreign policy, because we often talk about the power of Turkish soap operas as soft power. Um, but you also see what happens in the television arena when you have these, you know, Saudi and UAE really confronting Turkey and when they ban the Turkish soap operas and when they create their own with, you know, we're going to portray uh, Yavuz Sultan Selim as this really horrible leader and we're going to counter Ottoman tyranny and we're going to, you know, recreate the image of uh, of Ottoman tyranny the way that we think that it should be displayed, um, you know, fatwas against particular television shows as well. So there's a sense that governments take television very, very seriously in a, in a way that I think maybe not certainly media and cultural scholars do, but I think, you know, political scientists and others who are scholars of foreign policy should also consider the extent to which these debates over politics and identity play out in, in foreign policy and how we as scholars can kind of use that as an almost empirical window onto some of these debates to see how those power relations are playing out. Thank you. Um, Vern, I don't know if you- Maybe like... just a very uh, brief um, remarks because Alisa really nicely uh, summarized um, 
um, the most important debates um, as a response to the question that uh, you raised. Um, but again, as a comparativist, uh, what I really find fascinating is this idea of democracy and how it is diverged, understood, practiced, and lived through uh, by uh, different domestic constituents in Turkey. Uh, for, for example, secular uh, for uh, secular um, voters or uh, people who are voting for the opposition, democracy has become more and more. It wasn't like that before, but it has become more and more about constraints. Right. I mean, there is an ex executive and there has to be constraints in order to have a better functioning democracy. So they begin to understand democracy as a as more a substantive democracy as a result of this experience. But it wasn't like that before. I mean, that was almost um, for them as well about elections. Um, but for the AKP uh, constituency, it's basically, and for Erdogan himself, it's basically about elections, right? This Milli Irade, the, the national will, is about going to the polls, electing this person, and he's going to decide whatever um, is necessary for the national will or representing the people. I mean, he is the only person who represents the people, and the constraints are undemocratic, and you need to get rid of all those constraints. And that is widely accepted. Uh, so you have two competing images of democracy within Turkish society, one with constraints, one without constraints. And this is a contestation as well. Um, uh, and that is not just for Turkey. I think it's happening everywhere as well. Uh, the other thing about you ask this, uh, this bad boy behavior, I think it really takes us to this debate over the masculine identity and uh, the, the reading of the um, uh, um, both domestic politics and foreign policy from the lens of feminist IR or feminist foreign policy. Uh, Ali Bilgic, I guess, had a really nice book on that on Turkish foreign policy and how to understand it by using gender dynamics and 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 the gendered lens. And uh, he basically arguing in that book, if I remember correctly, the anxiety of being accepted as a man by the outsiders, by the West, uh, is also uh, this um, uh, is overlaps with this idea that being accepted as an as a state enough by the West. Uh, so these two different identities really overlap, right? Whenever Erdogan says something, I'm gonna do this. And he keeps doing that, uh, regardless of the national interest, I mean, regardless of the consequences as being kicked out from the F-35 program, it's basically about this masculine identity or being accepted as a state enough, as a man enough. So you really, uh, Ali Bilgic argues that you really understand this, you really have to understand this by using this, uh, this perspective of uh, the masculinity, hegemonic masculinity, and this non-Western uh, foreign policy makers claim to be accepted as equals and uh, that both has a domestic component and as a, a and also a foreign policy component and they really nicely overlap um, and it also really overlaps with this civilizational dynamic that the AKP uh, really has been promoting uh, specifically in the last decade or so uh, because this idea of uh, Turkey being a unique civilizational power, or Russia for Putin being a unique civilizational power, unique from the West, different from the West, um, is basically empowered by the 
masculine identity is, uh, by family dynamics, uh, the, the family dynamics of Turkey being very different from the Western uh, family dynamics, our morals are different, norms are different, and this all boils down to the issue of gender and how you see the masculine identity, how you conceptualize the masculine identity both in domestic politics and foreign policy, being the man of his word. Uh, being strong uh, uh, and being able to pursue the objectives independently of constraints. These are all components of this hegemonic masculinity or being state enough or being accepted as a state enough uh, by the outsiders. So I think there is really a very important component in understanding, I mean, this is a really important component of, for example, understanding uh, Turkish Russian relations. Um, I mean, it's more than decision, the similarity of decision-making processes. It's basically these two leaders, as Lizelle was saying, uh, really, I mean, see the familiar, familiarity uh, in their thinking. Uh, and, and when, for example, we talk about democratic peace theory, we basically say that that's the familiarity of the decision-making processes. And same here, when you talk about authoritarian politics or populism, it's the, it's the similarity of, of these thinking processes really make them, get them closer, align them uh, together against either civilizational threats or, or um, I mean, I don't know any type of threats, probably. So, so I'll stop here. And we Thanks. saw that on display when we had uh, Foreign Minister Chavusholu objecting to Foreign Minister Lin's feminist foreign policy. There was clearly a like Finland had a you know a, I forget the words that he used, but like nicely, clearly defined, articulate position. And then you know Sweden's feminist foreign policy. So yeah, that that you see those elements of when they encounter non-similar thinking systems, that's like one of the clashes that you see. So I, I'm really glad you brought that up. Thank you both. Um, uh, I am uh, quite anxious in time uh, flying uh, so quickly. And uh, I think that uh, we will be able probably to uh, draw to a conclusion by addressing some of the questions that we have uh, uh, here. I wish we had much more time, but. Uh, I will try to um, uh, read some of the questions and see how we can uh, uh, move towards some conclusions, uh, concluding ideas, uh, at least provisionally. So I have here a question by Evangelos Areteos, who is asking how far foreign policy impacts secularism within the society and how are the current trends uh, concerning secularization and desecularization uh, within the society playing out. Uh, so I don't know if that's something that uh, um, we talked a little bit about it, but uh, if you can, uh, yes, just briefly. I guess I would, I would just um, open quickly by saying that's, that's very much the, uh, the take that I try to provide in, in my first book is that foreign policy can provide an arena in which uh, actors can contest the, say, secularist obstacles, can try to reduce their role, marginalize their role, and thus create a space for a different understanding of identity, whether that is one that challenges secularism or promotes secularism. Um, so I think foreign policy, whether it is, say, accession criteria to an international organization, 
whether it is ethnic kin networks or diaspora networks that can also be leveraged in order to try to um, gain support for a particular position back home. Um, you may have heard of the, the um, Keck and Sickink uh, article about the boomerang effect, whereby you can kind of lobby external actors and they can then put pressure back on a government back home, whether again, that is for opening the space for religious freedoms or it is uh, targeting a particular uh, you know, radical religious actor. Um, and so I think there's a number of different mechanisms in the foreign policy arena. Um, again, whether it's transnational actors, whether it's ethnic kin groups, um, international organizations, uh, ways in which bilateral foreign policy ties can be, uh, can be leveraged in order to think about how normative power or institutional changes or even the projection of a new vision of an individual through a new form of media, through a new character on a television show, how those different uh, elements that will be coming from the international arena can then kind of shape uh, domestic understandings back home. I think um, the, the last decade, the societal dynamics have really change significantly. And uh, I mean, this question is important in terms of pointing us to the societal dynamics and how the society, Turkish society has been transformed because in the political science, and in the IR debate, uh, we usually have this tendency to look at um, the changes in the Turkish society with this um, uh, dichotomy of, or this, this framework of authoritarianism versus democracy. And we basically uses, um, uh, use de-democratization, institutional changes, de-institutionalization, or personalization of power decision-making processes and all those things that we have discussed so far. Uh, but the societal dynamics really have been transformed uh, in education. Uh, so we re really have a sort of a radically different educational milieu in Turkey right now. Uh, special dynamics have been changed. There are certain places that the seculars don't go. And I mean, it's just really polarized in terms of uh, its, its space and how we use space. And some places are more secular, or some are desecularized and all those things. And the daily life of, of Turkey has been really changed uh, from alcohol consumption to music, to culture, all those things. And, 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 and it really is an important dynamic uh, that sometimes, specifically by the external, um, I mean, um, uh, policymakers, that is being overlooked uh, because we have this tendency to really understand Turkey with this framework of authoritarianism versus democracy. Thank you. Um, I will also uh, pull together sort of a question by Dr. Ayla Girl that uh, comments both your interventions throughout this uh, discussion. And then she's asking uh, whether in, um, uh, uh, whether identity politics will still continue to be determining uh, Turkish foreign policy, uh, policy uh, given Turkey's economic crisis and anti-refugee demonization at home. So there's a lot to, uh, unpack here, but uh, uh, I think it's about the dynamics, future dynamics. So uh, yes, we can use it as well. Yeah, I guess I would say this is, uh, any answer that I give is going to be biased because I see everything through a lens of identity politics. But for me, I, identity politics is not just one government with a particular understanding of identity. It's, it's present everywhere. It's 
um, you know, yes, uh, we can look at, you know, Republican nationalism and, and pan-Turkism and Ottoman Islamism in Turkey, but we can also look at very different understandings of what it means to be American and what foreign policy research should, or what foreign policy activity could look like. Um, same in, in pretty much every case. I see similar dynamics to the sort of inside out contestation I was talking about in, in Israel, in India, in Iran, in lots of other cases. Um, so I think identity politics will always shape uh, foreign policy in some way. But I think the the extent to which identity is is explicitly mentioned as a reason for because when I think about identity, I think about like who are, who's the us and who's the them and what's the appropriate behavior for the us and what are the absolute inappropriate behaviors for the them. So that's what I sort of mean by, by these understandings of, of identity. And that's going to continue to shape foreign policy irrespective of whether we have uh, a, you know, a, a multi-identity multi represented coalition in Turkey or, or we continue to see something sort of um, on the right with the AKP. Um, but I would say that you know, if you have a, a coalition of opposition actors that were in the next government, um, you would see a switch away from the, say, support for the Muslim Brotherhood, for Hamas, for some of those particular policies. I think some of the anti-Americanism that everyone had mentioned earlier lingers, um, but I think you see a much more uh, EU-focused foreign policy. I think some of the identity politics that led to uh, you know, some of the anti-EU uh, anti nationalism that we saw, I think that would be softened to a certain extent. Um, so it's tough to predict what that will look like other than to know that identity politics will always play a factor in determining who are, like, who are the allies, who are the enemies. Um, and it's also going to depend on what that coalition of actors looks like and say what role the E party plays, right? Because um, that, that would shape a particular... Uh, dynamic of identity politics as well. Um, so I, I would just say, I think it's tough to know without knowing what that coalition of actors looks like. I think it also depends on, I mean, uh, I definitely agree to what Lizal has said, uh, that the identity politics is definitely going to be important, is going to be shaping uh, foreign policy. Um, but to what extent is really depend or dependent on the, the this fact that how much autonomy uh, does the Turkish foreign policy have outside? I mean, as I tried to explain in the opening remarks, um, Turkey really had quite an autonomy in the last decade to pursue his this inside-outside dynamic in the Middle East, in the regional politics, um, but that might be changing as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, where the middle powers may have less autonomy, uh, specifically in around Russia. Uh, so I am not sure. I mean, Turkey is really trying to um, increase its autonomy by playing this mediator role, trying to negotiate, um, um, I mean, trying to mediate um, between Russia and Ukraine. And, and But I am, I am suspicious uh, about the fact that whether this autonomy that Turkey has carved itself in the last decade um, is gonna be there. Uh, in the next decade or so, um, with this war uh, really escalating. Uh, so it depends also on the external dynamics. I mean, identity is there. Uh, who is friend, who is enemy is definitely um, shaped by identity politics. But how you play out with the identity politics externally is basically structural. And that structural dynamic is 
changing right now. Uh, so um, it will be interesting uh, to follow Turkish foreign policy and also um, with, the, with the elections coming, as Lizzo said. Yes, interestingly, I think that uh, uh, Turkey at this moment has this luxury of uh, uh, becoming a broker or at least a potential broker between Russia and Ukraine. But if uh, the international system uh, becomes even further polarized, I think that Turkey would have to make uh, uh, very uh, tough decisions on how it operates. And therefore there might be a loss of autonomy uh, to some extent, uh, which brings me very, yes. Um, uh, Chris asks, uh, sorry, first I will uh, go to Roger Higginson. Sorry, Chris. Uh, Roger Higginson says, uh, thanks everyone and Liesl for setting out the domestic international relationship so well. And uh, he is asking about uh, Turkey's currently professed opposition to Finland and Sweden's NATO uh, application, how this might play out, which I think ties to what we've been talking about uh, now. Uh, so uh, would you like to comment on that? Well, I think Turkey is, again, once again, trying to carve itself in autonomy uh, by bringing this up. And, and, and the end result is going to be Turkey accepting the membership of uh, Finland and Sweden. Uh, I don't know, but it is a negotiation. And majority of the oppositional voices in Turkey is basically not saying uh, that this decision to negotiate was wrong. Um, many people, in fact, arguing that it's quite good to negotiate when something this huge is happening, but the way that the Erdogan government is doing it so openly uh, and so publicly is wrong. And, and as Lizal uh, said in her opening remarks, he's basically doing this so openly on purpose because it plays into domestic politics as well, right? Uh, so my cards are on the table. Uh, this is about the Kurdish question. This is about our national uni unity. And remember the fact that Turkey's public is anti-NATO. Majority of the Turkey's public is anti-NATO. And also specifically Erdogan supporters are um, anti-NATO as well. Uh, so using this card, negotiating with NATO, again, being this um, man uh, who basically follows up his word and, and negotiating with this great power is really fades up with this masculine image as well. Uh, so all really plays out um, in a way uh, that is not irrational, but on, on the other side, it's it's a very rational strategy uh, for both um, uh, for both domestic audience and also, um, uh, I mean, rational in a sense that not externally, but mostly for the domestic audience, as, as Lizelle said. Uh, but at the end, I think um, the Turkey's how to say, or Turkey's uh, autonomy in that sense, I do think is very limited. At the end, um, the, there, there will uh, Turkey and the NATO countries, other NATO countries will find a way uh, either uh, to integrate um, Finland and Sweden as members or in a different way, but it's gonna get resolved. This is just a negotiation, like a spectacle kind of a thing that where you do this negotiation for the domestic audience, um, and where at the end you'll come up with this um, success, victory, something like that, uh, that Turkey successfully, as I said, I mean, successfully negotiated uh, this really important process, became an actor, elevated its status, uh, and resonates uh, what Erdogan has been doing, uh, both in domestic politics and in foreign policy. 
um, in the last decade, as we both <laughs> argued. Thank you. Lisa, would you like to say? Sure. Something? Yeah, I, I, I sort of opened my comments on this question, so I didn't want to um, take up time with it. But uh, I, I absolutely agree with what Evren is saying. And I think the point that she's making is a really important one. This idea that, you know, foreign policy and, and you know, there's a sense in which negotiations are expected. And that's something that happens in international relations. And that's just part of, of diplomacy. Um, and, and, you know, there are cards you put on the table and then you accept an offer, you don't, there's bargaining, there's tons and tons of IR literature on that. And there's the expectation that that's going to happen. But exactly as Evren said, it's the way in which this is being done that I think so many people are, are, uh, are sort of objecting to. And Sinem, Sinem Adar had a great uh, thread on this at the Center for Applied Turkish Studies that talked about the tone in which Erdogan is objecting, which I think fits very nicely with Evren's comments about this, you know, masculine posturing about what you're going to accept and playing the role of the the hero or the strong man. And, you know, we're, we're seeing it now. We saw it at Davos in 2009 when Erdogan yells at Shimon Peres and, you know, walks off the stage. There's very much this, this moss, this strong man posturing that I think is going in to a lot of it. Um, in terms of how this plays out, I 100% agree that I think, you know, Sweden and, and Finland will, will join. Turkey will remove its, its objection, but I think it'll walk away with some concessions. I think those won't include things like extraditions for the reasons of different forms of government and rule of law that we talked about. Um, but it could be something about statements about, you know, the, the PKK or, or something in which the, although Sweden has been, I think, conscious to note that it was like the first state after Turkey to designate the PKK as a terrorist organization. So it's trying to uh, separate out its support for or its uh, dealings with the PYD out from the PKK. Um, but yeah, so I think Turkey will walk away with something. And exactly as Evren said, it will be celebrated and lauded. And he comes home just like he did from Davos as sort of a hero who was able to maybe negotiate F-16s. We'll see. Um, okay, um, I think this is the last question we're going to, actually, I will put a, a set of questions, they're not uh, uh, related, but uh, the, the, Chris is asking about, um, uh, uh, mentions the de-escalation efforts in the Eastern Mediterranean that uh, uh, Erdogan and the AKP government, led government, have uh, tried to, uh, in some way, set in motion, and uh, wonders if uh, an election uh, that uh, uh, you know might affect uh, uh, this the fate of this de potential de-escalation. Um, and very quickly, I will mention that uh, Umer is asking probably the million-dollar question: uh, if you can uh, come up with a theoretical perspective that brings the inside-out uh, kind or the domestic uh, foreign. Um, uh, you know, together in a way that uh, then can form a paradigm uh, for others to follow. So I think it's a, yeah, it's a question that we may not have time to answer, but please uh, have a go at any of the two or the two. Yes. All right, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, so on the, the de-escalation um, in the Middle East and the, the Eastern Mediterranean, I think this is a great question because I think that the de-escalation is pragmatic and, and centered around economic and energy concerns for the most part, um, and, and regional security to a certain extent. But I think there's a medium term and a short term game that, that Erdogan and the AKP may be playing when it comes to elections. And the, sh the medium term would be 
are there any ways to ease this economic crisis that could come from any kind of energy partnership or some kind of, of concessions that we may be able to get from these particular countries? And then the short term is going to be, do you see kind of nationalist punching, nationalist outbursts at Greece, at Israel, at some of these other countries right in the run up to elections? Um, so it may be like a year, year and a half out. Let's see what we can get from these relationships. And then when it comes down to the election time, identity politics is materially, not in any other sense, but materially relatively cheap. And so that kind of nationalist rhetoric, um, whether it's directed at Greece, uh, at uh, the Republic of, of Cyprus, whether it's directed at Israel or Saudi or some other actor, um, may be a short-term fix that is they try to use for some kind of bump in the polls. Um, so I'll, on the question of uh, Umar's question, um, I would just say, by my book. <laughs> no, that's a horrible way of answering that. Um, one of the things that I think is, is most important to do is to find some kind of operationalizable framework that can break down identity into different components. Um, I used a frame of that in my book. There's lots of other ways of doing it. Uh, break it down, break down what that core of the populism is, because what Evran mentioned is, is, I think, a really nice way of summing up Populism, as Kasmuda and lots of others have said, it's a thin ideology. It could be leftist populism, rightist populism, Islamic populism. You know, there's an us versus them, pure people, corrupt elite dynamic that is common to all. But the you need to be able to break down the core elements of what that populism consists of. And then that helps you study it over time. You help it helps you study its role in foreign policy over time. And it also helps you study comparatively populism to populism. So some kind of element that that breaks it down in some kind of operationalizable framework is what I would say. Now, coming from a comparativist perspective, I'm not really like, you know, like this person who really breaks down into theories and try to understand the processes by using the specific theory of like we have to look at the foreign policy by using a realist or neoclassical realism or this and that. What I'm trying to do specifically when trying to understand this um, dynamics of um, in domestic politics and foreign policy and how they come together is I'm looking at, for example, processes, as I said, processes processes and mechanisms of decision-making processes, identity construction mechanisms, and things like that. So more like I'm using a comparativist um, methodology and, and, and applying it to um, IR. Um, but um, um, I could say uh, that makes you a methodological eclecticist, <laughs> which I gladly uh, accept. Um, but I'm also aware of the, you know, like different theories of IR, and I uh, sort of um, uh, use them, for example, democratic peace theories, similarity of decision making processes that really explains a lot. Um, and this and that. Uh, so uh, I really cannot then say that uh, you really have to work uh, with this specific uh, theory. It really depends on the question uh, that you're asking, depends on the uh, processes that you're looking at. And there are a variety of the theories, methodologies that are available out there. And, 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 and I uh, see no harm in picking uh, one or many of them and combining them to understand um, uh, what is going on? Uh, so I think asking the right question is more important than picking up the right theory. Um, so that's my, my take <laughs> in general. Um, when I'm looking at anything, not just foreign policy, but democracy, populism, and that's, that's um, how I studied them. Uh, in terms of the de-escalation, I think Lizelle's take is uh, really um, um, 
good and as I fully support her view about that about the economic imperative that the AKP government has been going through and also the energy dependency and Turkey has been trying to uh, decrease its dependency on Russian gas and oil for many years it's not new for the last three four years uh, Turkey thinks that this is a problem depending being dependent on exclusively on Russia in terms of Russian gas and because of the sanctions on Iran uh, Turkey has become more and more dependent on Russian gas in, in the last decade and uh, trying to diversify its energy resources, economic resources. That's uh, that's the economic and energy imperative that really uh, made Turkey uh, to de-escalate uh, in the region, in the Middle East, um, in the East Man. Uh, but also um, uh, another component of it is that Turkey really left alone. Um, in terms of its alliances in the in the east um, in the eastern Mediterranean and in the Middle East as well, uh, so um, and needed allies in order to pursue this autonomous strategy. I mean, uh, so that is another imperative. Uh, having more allies than Russia, uh, both at the regional level and uh, more um, uh, more at the global level. So uh, Turkey really this I mean tried to balance the role of Russia, which it was. Get, uh, go, getting more and more stronger in the last four years. And Turkey was, uh, I mean, Turkey's relationship with Russia was not really uh, without problems. Uh, look at what, ha what has been going on Idlib, uh, the killing of Turkish soldiers, and, and this and that, lots of problems in terms of the Kurdish question as well. Uh, so Turkey wanted to balance its relationship or the, the, the position of Russia by creating new alliances, alignments within the region. Uh, so it is a continuation of this uh, policy of uh, balancing or autonomy in a sense. And that is another imperative that Turkish foreign policy elites had to follow. And uh, finally, everyone else was doing it. I mean, and the, this conflictual dynamic that the Middle East has been, had uh, went through, had gone through um, up until 2019, from 2011 to 2019, this regional competition really began to ease. Uh, the, 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 uh, the problems in uh, Syria still there, but there is sort of an order, functioning order um, in Syria. Um, I mean, in quotation marks, of course, in Libya too. Uh, so Middle East it was very slowly, slowly uh, becoming a more of a or a less of a stable region back again. And uh, these uh, previous competitors, uh, previous enemies, all of them began to talk to each other, Israel and Arab Alliance, uh, Qatar talking to Saudis. Uh, so Turkey really didn't wanna uh, stay alone when everyone is um, having their moment of rapprochement. Uh, so I think uh, one important element of the escalation is that, so why, I mean, when everyone is doing that, I have to do it as well, kind of a dynamic. Uh, and and, and uh, that changed the Turkey's foreign po policy posture in the Middle East in the last two years, I would say. Um, yes, thank you very much. I think we have to uh, draw this event to, uh, to a close, uh, to a close at this moment. I wanted to say just uh, very briefly abusing my uh, chairing of this event that uh, uh, <clears throat> in your responses uh, with regards to how to approach 
the, this, uh, this uh, foreign domestic kind of relationship, you both uh, uh, approach it in eclectic ways, which I think is the strength of your methodologies and in some ways, the theory that you use. So uh, I think in some ways you, you have uh, uh, demonstrated this perfectly in this discussion. Uh, so I'm very grateful for you having participated in this. I look forward to future encounters. I would like to also th thank our audience for uh, participating. And I would like to encourage you to tweet about the event if you have liked it. Uh, go to our Facebook page and uh, follow us and subscribe to our website to get updates of our events. Thank you again very much for uh, your participation. And uh, yes, and we will uh, hopefully talk soon again in another event. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.